We are live. You're listening to MiseryTourism.com's Misery Movies podcast, uh, which is basically a film discussion and review podcast about movies about human suffering. There, that's about as concise as I can make it. Um, Each week, we or each episode, the idea that we release these on a weekly basis is frankly absurd. But each episode, we discuss a different film that's picked by a different uh, member of our podcast crew. And basically, the first half of the podcast is a spoiler-free overview of the film. We talk about it in general terms. We talk about the themes, the ideas of the film, maybe a little bit about the cinematography or or the script to some degree, the characters, the the performances, whatever. But we steer clear of anything that will spoil the film for you. At the end of the first half, we each each of us reviews the film very briefly, and then after that, we launch into the second half of the podcast, which will contain spoilers. And uh, that segment will go deeper into maybe the ending of the film, also specific scenes that we liked or didn't like, um, and yeah. That's pretty much it. So I am joined by, uh, first of all, I'm Will, and I'm joined by a few of our regular Misery Tourism contributors here. Uh, AJ. Yo. Brandon. Hello, hello. And Rudy. Taste the wind. (laughs) Uh, So we are in the midst of, we're in, the fourth and final episode, a probably final episode, considering Halloween is right around the corner, of a Halloween movie marathon series of podcasts. And in these podcasts, we've been looking at, uh, you know, I don't know, spooky films, films that are at least vaguely supernatural or vaguely Halloweeny in some way or another. Uh, maybe horror films, maybe not necessarily horror films. So the last movie that we're doing in that series is uh, one I selected, and that's the um, Japanese ghost story film Quidan. So uh, I don't know. We're, we should probably launch into a discussion of the film here, but before we do that, I suppose i it's my job, since it's my movie, to provide a synopsis of the film. Uh, one thing that's worth mentioning right off the bat is that this is an anthology film. It's actually a series of four individual segments or vignettes about uh, – and each of those segments is based on a different Japanese ghost story. Most of them are based on – actually a folklore collection called Kwaidan, uh, which is where the director drew most of his material from. Um, and each of them presents a sort of different twist on, uh, I don't know, Japanese folk mythology about ghosts and spirits and other supernatural things. I don't want to get too much into the content of any of the individual stories before we get to our spoiler section, although we might touch on them 
touch on them lightly here shortly. I don't know, guys. Is there something you wanted to talk about uh, with regarding this film? Anyone want to get us started here? No? Hearing a lot of... <laughs> Uh, yeah, not not really a whole lot to say on on this one for once. Not often that you have a movie where there's nothing really bad you can say, but I also can't really think of anything great to say either. Huh. So this movie didn't have much of an impact on you at all. Uh, not not really. No, I think it was kind of a, a Japanese version of Grimm's Fairy Tales. I suppose you could say that. Um, let me let me let me start by asking you guys this. So far, the first three movies we've done in this sort of Halloween movie marathon series um, have not been scary films. <laughs> the first one was What We Do in the Shadows, which was a comedy, and it was a vampire comedy. It was a horror comedy, maybe, but it was really not intended to be scary the second one was zombie first which was I, I don't know i don't even know if it was intended to be scary but it was mostly just really incredibly obnoxious and a huge waste of time uh thanks again sarah the third <laughs> one uh, yeah was, yeah yeah thanks again for that the third one which was uh brandon's choice was 13 demons which was a, I suppose, a horror film about about a, a possessed board game or a board game that causes the players to, um, I don't know, lose their shit and think they're paladins who are fighting demons or something. And, and anyway, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, did anyone find that movie scary at all? Frightening? Nope. No. 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 I didn't. I did not. So let me ask you this. This is our last chance to pick a scary movie then, to actually do a scary movie for Halloween. So did any of you, did anyone here find this movie scary at all? I did vaguely. It wasn't... Without getting into spoilers. <laughs> it wasn't very it didn't scare me, but like, it was definitely more scary than a lot of movies that I've seen. If that makes sense. It does. B-Boy, you've seen a lot of horror movies. Uh, first of all, have you ever seen a horror movie that scared you? And second of all, did this horror movie scare you? Um, have I ever seen a horror movie that scared me? That's, that's a good question. Um, I remember a scene from a horror movie that scared me as a child where, uh, someone's heart was ripped out through their chest by a, uh, I don't know, a demon, a demon possessed woman. That one scene scared me. The rest of it, nothing. Um. Dan, for me, honestly, felt like I was watching a series of bedtime stories. So not scary then. <laughs> not in the least. It was. It, least. This was okay. probably the most relaxing ghost movie I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> huh, that's interesting. Uh, 
Rudy. Uh, not really. No, I didn't really find it scary. Um. Wow. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is the kind of movie that, like, uh, I probably would have found scary as a kid. I guess, really? but not really. Now, I, I honestly, I, I don't even know about that because I don't. I've never really been scared by any movies, really. So, not one to to scare from movies. So, hmm. uh, especially not horror movies. Huh? I have not. I can't really think of any movies that have scared me as an adult. I mean, I can think of. I'm sure that you know pretty much everything scared me when I was a kid. I mean, I was. A, pretty huge pussy i mean i still am but i'm just scared of like you know human interaction and having to go outside of my apartment but there's not much <laughs> fictional that scares me anymore but i will say i watched this movie for the first time a year ago and it fucked me up <laughs> like i did not i i had trouble going to sleep that the night after i the night that i watched it and it stuck with me in a way that I don't think any other horror movie have. I mean, there have been horror movies that I've watched that have gotten me with a jump scare or something, but after that, I've mostly just been angry at the movie. You know, like, oh, it, it like, you know, it, like, ugh, and then you're like, oh, you know, and, and it's like, that was cheap. I feel like, I, I feel like I was assaulted a little bit, you know? <laughs> I, I don't feel like that was earned. Uh, and this is the first movie I think I've watched that has gotten as an adult anyway, that has gotten under my skin in a really profound way and spooked me in a way that I thought was earned, which is why I picked it for the podcast. Um, <coughs> Will's a pussy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I am. But... Stop scare shaming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to talk about exactly what scared me in this movie i will say that it was two of the four vignettes scared me and the other two didn't but or didn't really scare me that much um but i think what it is about this movie as a horror film that i think makes it work as a horror film is that as I said, I think that to the degree that it scares you or doesn't scare you or to the degree that it affects you emotionally in any way, I think it earns that. This movie doesn't use any of the cheap tactics that horror movies use. Well, with one possible small exception, which we can talk about later, but there are no jump scares in this. In fact, the movie is very consciously i think constructed in a way to diffuse the possibility of there being any true jump scares maybe we can talk about that mm -hmm. later um there are there are no like there's no gore in this movie there are no characters making absurd stupid decisions that get them killed you know there's no like irrational behavior that leads to cheap unearned scares there's no like contrived plotting 
<laughs> that like <laughs> that like most horror movies have. You know that that sort of you know intense amount of work the movie will put into to manufacture a scary moment. Instead, this movie's actually almost kind of meditative <laughs> in, in that it, it it very much eases you eases you into a sense of unease if that makes any sense it like slowly works away at you in a very methodical way it slowly whittles you down uh, and if you give it your full attention i feel like anyway it like works its way under your skin but I know you guys may disagree with me about that since you weren't particularly scared by it, but what did you think? I think meditative is definitely a good word for it. Um, there was definitely a sense of, of ease to the way that the stories played out. And that that's not just a knock at the fact that this movie is just over three hours long <laughs> and tells four separate stories. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a sense of ease to it where they take their time and they build things up slowly. There's definitely that sense of an actual logical buildup that you don't really get in a lot of the American horror movies that I think that they actually did really well with this, um, that aspect. But I, I think that in a lot of ways they kind of milked certain things too long. Um, it just kind of left me wanting in some ways. So that's interesting that you're talking about the pacing of the film then. Really, you think that these segments may have been a little bit too slow, a little bit too... Yeah. Does... Yeah, personally, I think that I think that it would have been better if there would have been less of the the repetitive nature in some of the scenes. Yeah. Uh, anyone else want to get in on the pacing of the film? I would. And okay. I, I can't help myself but make a jab at B-Boy for getting on Clyde and the repetitive nature when he chose 13 demons. They Wait. were literally doing the same thing for six minutes straight. Anyway. <laughs> AJ, you're out for blood tonight. That's a, that's a fair shot, AJ. That's a fair shot. <laughs> Um, I would say that there was one of the four stories that I felt the pacing lagged a little bit, but I, I'm not actually sure if that was just because I was getting tired at that point, because I could, like, I feel like every repetitive moment in even that story was there for a purpose, and it served the story well, but like I could feel myself um, kind of wishing it would hurry up a little bit. Hmm. Um, I would like to say about the scariness of the film is that I didn't feel like it was scary basically at all, but it was very interesting. Of It did stick with you a little bit, um, but not in like... Not in a particularly potent way for me. Hmm. That's interesting. But uh, Rudy, what about how did you feel about the pacing of the film? 
I think the pacing was pretty good because um, I normally cannot sit through movies, and this was uh, this was actually an exception as far as like I guess probably the fact that they were all short vignettes probably helped a little bit. Um, but I feel like uh, the build up to you know the scare or whatever, if you want to call it that, was right. pretty much just right. Like. Yeah, I agree with you. That's the way I feel is actually I think the pacing in these films are basically perfect. I don't think there was actually anything repetitive. I wouldn't use the word repetitive anyway. I could see why you would say that some of the segments were slow, you know, uh, that they were methodical, that they really took their time in moving towards uh, the end result. An end result that in these movies, by the way, often feels inevitable, which is something that I actually liked about the film, is that there aren't many there aren't many twists, at least in the way you think of a twist in a horror film. You know, the movies true. end at a very natural conclusion and in or the segments end at a end up at a very natural conclusion. And one that you probably in most cases saw coming although there's a couple of them where there's a real subversion there um in the way that it ultimately resolves but 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 i feel like that is actually in the film's service like that's a that's a feature not a bug of the film the fact that because the fact that you know where it's going allows you to focus on everything else that's happening the movie spends a lot of time on its characters and also building atmosphere right and i think that because the film is mm -hmm. somewhat slow in its pacing that there's just more time for that if it makes any sense and i think that th there's actually nothing repetitive though in that, even though I'm being repetitive right now, there's nothing repetitive because I think that every scene in this film, if you went back and watched the film again, you could you would potentially find that, first of all, every scene lasts exactly as long as it needs to. Unlike 13 Demons, where every scene lasted three or four minutes longer than it needed to. But this, no single scene goes on longer than it needs to to arrive at its natural endpoint or to do whatever it kind of it kind of exists to do. Also, no scene in this film exists just to reiterate something that happened in a previous scene. Actually, each scene is almost a more a natural evolution from the scene before it if that makes any sense. Like it things change incrementally from scene to scene in a way that really draws you towards the ultimate conclusion of each of these stories. So I do think that the pacing, I, I can see someone watching this film and saying, oh my God, <laughs> like nothing is happening. I was, I was expecting some fucking ghosts and where are the ghosts? <laughs> like I, I, I could see that, or especially since um, there's a lot of time spent here on human relationships too, which I think is really thematically important, but often may seem tangential mm. to like the supernatural parts of the film. But I, I really do think that 
the pacing, even if it's deliberate, is really effective. And that I think if the movie moves through these stories more quickly, uh, the tension or the kind of escalating sense of dread or the way that it almost like pulls you into like the way it blends like blurs the line between the real and the supernatural or the real and the fantastical i don't think that would work if the movie was flying from plot point to plot point i guess yeah i guess i i see what you're saying i and yeah repetitive may not have been the right word yeah i guess it was more of a, a certain level of tedium to it So do but you mean that, like that's a personal opinion, I guess. Would you mean that like there's not enough action going on? Not even necessarily that. Just for me it just felt like it dragged because of how long some of the setups were. And and I'm not saying that the setup wasn't important or that the setup didn't have its payoff, but for me it felt like there was too much setup. When, like you said, the endings to each vignette seemed so natural, and to me, they really were predictable. Like halfway into the story, you already see how it's going to end because these are such. It's based on fairy tales, it's based on folklore, and these stories are so classic and so standard that we're all used to this to the setup of these stories. So for me, some of the some of the stories that took that longer time to build up and build and build and build, it may have felt repetitive to me because I am so used to the format mm. that it's kind of an automatic thing. Like, all right, I already know, I already know exactly where this is going, and yet you keep going and going and going. Yeah, I could definitely. I can definitely imagine someone saying this film feels tedious or this film feels slow. That wasn't my experience with the film at all, but I could definitely – I think it really – a lot of it has to do with your expectations of a film. You know, What do you expect from a film? And I think if you're – and I think for a lot of people, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with this, but I do think for a lot of people, like plot advancement, being able to see the plot moving forward and feel like the plot moving forward in a propulsive way is really important. And I think that's actually one of the major dividing lines when it comes to what movies certain people do or do not enjoy. I think you could make a lot of noise about like, oh, well, you know, oh, well, some people like really like only like contemporary movies with like a lot of, you know, explosive special effects or whatever. You know, they really only like Michael Bay films or something. But I don't think that's the case with most people. I don't I think that a lot of those people, if you um. If they went home and they watched a, like an old-fashioned kind of western, would enjoy that too, but would never be able mm -hmm. to sit through an Igmar Bergman film, <laughs> you know? Would never be able to like sit through a Tarkovsky film, and I think that's the distinction really more than necessarily some need to have your be dazzled by special effects or whatever. I think for a lot of people, 
there really needs to be the sense that there's some forward momentum to the plot. And if that's something you need, I can see why this movie would be painful in parts. Uh, but I actually, <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I'm almost very anti-plot in some ways. Like <laughs> a lot of times, like if I feel the plot moving forward, I'm like, stop! <laughs> no, I don't want any more plot. <laughs> Fuck it. I, I don't like if I start to feel the plot. Not in every movie. I mean, there are some movies that are really cleverly constructed that are mostly plot. But like Christopher Nolan makes these movies that are like. 100% plot mechanics. And most of the time, it works really effectively. I mean, Interstellar is probably the only Christopher Nolan film I have not enjoyed. Um, <laughs> yeah, we won't talk about <laughs> Interstellar. Uh, that that would be a whole other can of worms. But Yeah, why would you even bring that up? <laughs> but And so it's possible to make a really great film that is mostly you know just a really well tuned like machine just like like the sort of this uh a deist like divine um watchmaker approach to filmmaking where the director builds this perfect little mechanism and then sets it aside to run on its own but for the most part movies that feel too mechanical in that way turn me off which i think is another thing that i really enjoyed about this movie yeah, I mean, I guess as far as the pacing goes, like the scenes are, the shots are held for a really long time in a lot of scenes. Um, a lot of the scenery and stuff is pretty static, mm. like the backgrounds and all that stuff. So it's not really, that could contribute to the feeling of, I guess, tedium also. That's right. There's not a lot of fancy camera work going on here with a few exceptions. Like there aren't that many like, a, a lot of the shots are held, as you said. They don't cut between what we, you see in films today, you know, a close-up of someone's face while they're talking. Okay, here's another angle on the same thing. Here's an angle, you know, here's a wide one. Here's a close-up, you know, yeah. all within the same scene. He, There are a few really, uh, at least one that I can think of, and probably more than that, um, effective, like, pan shots or shots where the camera is moving. Um with the with the narrative or moving with the action on the screen or just moving across um moving through a set even there's one scene like that very early in the film that's really effective but you're right Rudy. i think that it's not like that kind of dynamic editing and i think that actually is to the movie's benefit you guys can feel free to disagree with me about that but i think that that really especially considering how effectively some of the sets are constructed. The fact that there are so many shots that are wide and stay wide, I think is really to its benefit, really helps to build atmosphere. I would agree with that. I also yeah. agree. I think the camera work is really effective in this movie. Yeah, for me, honestly, having those wide angle sustained shots, um, it made me feel a lot like I was actually watching a play and not a movie. That's yeah. actually, yeah. yeah I, I got the sense um, a couple different times through the movie that it felt like a play, um, particularly with like some of the ways that they use the lighting. Yes. And I really enjoyed mm -hmm. that. 
I, I, there was one scene in particular during the third segment or the third story when I, I had exactly the same thought. I said, wow, the, I really feel like I'm watching a play. I really feel like I'm watching theater. I think it was because yeah. of the construction of that particular set. But I, I think you're right. And the backdrops, I think, really contribute to that. The fact yeah. that so many yeah. of the – even though they feature like – rather organic uh natural looking uh foregrounds you know often they're set set in uh somewhat mundane looking locations as far as the, the foreground is concerned a lot of them use these hand-painted backgrounds or backdrops i that give it a really weird sort of ethereal ephemeral supernatural whatever you want to say is really distinct look and i think that probably really contributes to the sense that you're watching a you're watching a play right you're watching uh because it almost looks like the kind of possibly hand-painted backdrop that you might they might use in a play because obviously you you can't just be like okay guys we're this this one's set in a gazebo let's all go this scene set in a gazebo let's all go outside you know or this scene set by a river let's all go and sit by the river you know yeah for me the standout in that category was in uh was in the second vignette with that winter sky that to me was was just absolutely amazing visually yeah. We no, yeah. It was a very effective thing. We should definitely talk about the look a bit because this movie is absolutely gorgeous. Like, I, I would probably say it's the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. I would agree with you. I was going to say pretty much the same thing. This is uh, the only films I can. Th- there are a few Tarkovsky films. Stalker, Solaris, uh, The Mirror, that might come close to this. But if you're talking about competition for the most beautiful film ever made, the most like purely visually gorgeous film, this is either number one or it's certainly in the top five. You know, it it really I, I haven't, as I said, aside from a few of Tarkovsky's films, I don't think anything even comes close to this. Certainly not like a lot of contemporary films that are very self-consciously pretty. Uh, <coughs> Wes Anderson. <coughs> mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, really put a, seem to pay a lot of attention to manufacturing a very specific kind of visual a- aesthetic. Mm-hmm. A lot of those movies... So the... In best case scenario, some of those movies do look very good, but they are just not on the level of like sheer visual wonder that's produced by this film. And I'm not sure. You do you guys want to talk about that at all? I mean, like this this it doesn't come close to Wes Anderson films. It really doesn't. Like this film is really gorgeous. It uses, I don't know, it's very striking the way that it uses color, especially the second and third stories. Um, those two in particular are, there's a lot of contrast, but also it uses 
this extremely odd sort of uncanny valley type effect where everything looks um, very uh, fake and created and almost like uh, the small little like Christmas town figurines you find in you know the mall or in a specialty Christmas shop where there's you know a bunch of small people in trees that's all been handcrafted but it all looks extremely real at the same time um while i was watching it i kind of got this odd um like old never-ending story kind of feel to it but never-ending story has like this you know all the obvious fake creatures and the costumes and it's all very kitschy and just like really bad (laughs) and um and Quiet Anne is so real in the way that it seems created. It, it It's really odd. And that combined with the story and how, like, the supernatural is blended with the real really gives it a kind of interesting blended effect between the look and the plot. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you almost took the words out of my mouth exactly. I think that this is a movie about, like, I don't want to say liminal spaces, but it's a movie about spaces that exist between the real and the supernatural, right? Which is what folklore is always in some way about, the, like, intrusion of the supernatural or the otherworldly on the mundane and the real. And a lot of movies um, will try, will swing really far in one direction or another. Like they'll either do the like found footage thing where they are trying their damnedest to seem as real as possible. You know, even though it's a horror film to really make everyone watching it feel like this really happened, you know, and we're going to be very mundane. We're going to be very like attentive to making our details look as grounded in reality as possible. Or there's the other extreme where there's like so much attention paid to the surreality of it or the, the uh, fantastical parts of it, you know, that there's never any question of there even being any attempt to uh, have it appear real at all. But this film, it's really weird the way they get – they really inhabit that space between reality and fantasy where, like I said, a lot of what's often foregrounded is very mundane, especially in the first and last segments. There's a lot of attention to making things sometimes look just very normal, or you have scenes where – as I said, the foreground, what's happening in front of the screen, you know, what's happening close to the camera is very normal. And uh, the, the setting, the set that's immediately like that you that you see, you know, I mean, it's obviously in actuality a two dimensional space. But if you're working with the illusion of a three dimensional space, what your attention would normally be drawn to most what's foregrounded is often very just 
normal looking. But then in the background, like you'll have this beautiful hand painted backdrop, like this totally, I mean, fake, yes, but this totally surreal looking sky or whatever. And it's just that combination of those things is really, it does something to you. It does something to help you like inhabit exactly the kind of world that myths and fairy tales exist in. One that is on one level definitely fake, but also feels real. I mean, it's that experience you get when you're reading a ghost story as a kid. We're like, you know, this is fiction, but you get sucked in and and it disturbs you on some level, right? On some level, after you close the book, you're still inhabiting that world. And there's still the possibility, even though it's irrational, that something supernatural could happen, that a ghost could materialize. You know, you're, you're like, ooh, I don't really want to go in the bathroom alone now, you know, immediately after putting down uh, a collection of ghosts. At least, and this is an experience that most people have when they're very young or relatively young, you know, childhood, early adolescence, you, it's very easy to evoke that experience when you're young. You know, it, it, any any silly ghost story will do it to you. We'll suddenly take the safe, mundane world and transform it into something where something like horrifying and otherworldly can happen. It's a, That's a very hard feeling to wring out of someone when they're you know, a grizzled adult who has come to believe that like, you know, and, and rightfully so that the supernatural is kind of bullshit. No offense, Brandon. <laughs> I mean, but um, it's really hard to get back in that space. And for me anyway, this movie, and I think the visuals are a big part of it, really grabbed me and pulled me back into that space. Hmm. Uh, but Rudy, Brandon, do you want to talk about the visuals? Yeah. I mean, I agree with the, uh, with the stuff said about the backdrops, uh, how they kind of take you and put you into that kind of half in the half in the supernatural and half in the real world type of space. Um, that's one of the first things I noticed about the movie was the hand painted backgrounds that looked like you said unreal, I guess. Um, and that's something that they visually you know, double down on throughout the whole movie is, is that so. While we're talking about visuals, I'd like to mention the, uh, the actors. I, I really liked how the actors basically all look like, uh, like Japanese Hina dolls of they, they're all perfectly (laughs) composed and like, Mm -hmm. If you notice throughout the movie, some of the actors' faces just look unreal, <laughs> almost like you know they've been um, almost as if they're wearing a mask. And I think some of mm. that effect was done through makeup. Definitely through makeup, and the makeup yeah, yeah. work in yeah. this is spectacular. It's it's on point. It's. Yeah, it's amazing. And the way that the actors themselves <laughs> stay extremely still in some circumstances and don't entirely react to s- things in the way that you would expect real people to react, it's both um yeah. 
it's both somewhat like uncanny valley mannequin come to life type shit and at the same time extremely japanese <laughs> yeah i i totally agree with that a lot is achieved through the act that once again i, I think i mean I don't know when the phrase uncanny valley was coined, but it definitely, it may have been coined after this film was even made, but this film is definitely like a quintessential kind of uncanny valley experience throughout. Uh, B-Boy, I want to get you in here though. Uh, yeah, I, I, for me is another thing that kind of calls back to that almost kabuki theater style. Yeah, that yeah, I definitely. did enjoy with the visual, um, especially when you had the the great, the almost grayed out faces of the the ghosts and the paranormal elements to the film. It was just, it was so simple. It was gray chalk powder, but it was very very effective. Mm. And for me, that really was a was a big plus, especially like I said. I liked the fact that it felt like I was watching a play more than I was watching a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Anything anyone else wants to say about the visuals of this film before we move on? No? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, does anyone have anything they want to talk about in the spoiler-free section of this podcast before we move on to reviews and spoilers? I'll admit, um, I spent. I, I actually don't have a hell of a lot to talk about as far as this movie is concerned, I think, for two reasons. Reason number one is there are some movies that do so much in a space that's very difficult to describe. Film is a visual medium, naturally. And, and some films, like, lend themselves to critique and analysis and dissection and debate. Uh, some great films lend themselves well to those things, and um, some very bad films really lend themselves to those things too. And then you have some films that just don't because they function so entirely on a visual level or a visceral level or both that they don't – they're not necessarily made – for discussion they're made to be experienced <laughs> and i really feel like this film which i do think is like a real masterpiece is more of the latter it doesn't necessarily lend itself to like thematic dissect dissection or to like a, a fan theories or to like lots of puzzling over what the the uh director was trying to do in any given moment mm -hmm. but yeah it really works. <laughs> it really gets you and gets you feeling things and gets you experiencing things. Uh, the second reason I don't have much to say is because I spent the whole afternoon playing Super Mario Odyssey and I did not prepare <laughs> for this podcast at all. I also, you want to end it so you can get back to playing Super Mario. Are you talking about things that bring you back into that space that you could only feel in childhood? Jesus Christ. Uh, it's like, oh my God, excited about a video game. I mean, that's... Uh... So this is, we're just going to talk about Super Mario Odyssey now, aren't we? <laughs> 
No, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna, unless we start a. Uh, maybe we should fuck it. Let's stop doing film podcasts and do video game podcasts. Uh, that sounds expensive. Yeah, that's true. You can't really rent games uh, or um, obtain games totally legally over the internet the way you can. <laughs> well, I mean, we could just do indie games that are free. Yeah, that's true. Free to, that's free to play true. ones. I know which one I'm choosing. But anyway, for better or for worse, we're in the middle of a oh, film God. podcast right now. So. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Um... So, yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. Opening like, up to you guys. We should just go. To I would agree with you. This is version. Well, I think we should let Brandon talk, AJ. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say I agree with you in that. <laughs> God damn it! Shut up. Really? Okay. I am. I was sorry, Brandon. What were you saying? As I've as I've tried to say twice now, I agree with you. This is definitely one of those movies that kind of defies explanation in a lot of ways. That I mean, it's one of those movies I don't really have anything negative that I can say, and it's hard to really say anything positive other outside of commenting on the visual because it is such a one of those things where movies should at times be an experience unto themselves. Quietan kind of delivers on that as long as you're in the right mindset to sit down and to let it absorb. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. Uh, Rudy? Nope. I don't have anything else to say. Uh, I'm ready for the spoilers section. Yeah. I kind of really. One thing about this is because of the way it's structured and because the vignettes are so short and because so much that happens in them is in some ways if not revealed at the beginning foreshadowed very heavily by the setup so much of what we could potentially be talking about is a spoiler so what i would like to do when we go into the spoiler section is take each segment one by one and talk about them but i don't want to do that now so maybe we well aj did you have anything nope no? Well, then I think this is the fastest we've ever made it to, especially once we cut out. We've got a few um, you know, parts that we'll need to cut out because of technical issues. But once we cut those out, I think that this will be one of the fastest uh, – <laughs> you know, we're pretty much record time here arriving at the review section. Yeah. But that's fine. Uh, so um, who wants to go first with their review of the film? Oh, I think it's fair that you go first since you chose the film. Well, usually I go fast. Go fast. <laughs> yeah, usually I go fast. <laughs> Just warning you. <laughs> I don't have much endurance or stamina. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, oh, you got to leave that part in. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I will. Do you think I have any shame? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, I structure this so that I always go last. Uh, because he thinks his opinion is most important. <laughs> <laughs> but I okay, okay, I'll go. I'll go first. I will go first this time. Um, oh, oh, you think you're so important? You get to go first. <laughs> you know what, AJ? Fuck you. You're going first. Then. <laughs> okay, uh. okay. Um, 
it's a really good movie. Um, I enjoyed all of it. It's so beautiful, and don't expect to be too scared unless you're a pussy like Will. Um, but, like, the stories were still very entertaining and interesting, so it was definitely worth the time. Um, a really good Halloween movie, but also a really good any time of the year movie. I give it 9 out of 10 vultures. Wow, 9 out of 10 vultures. Is that the highest score you've ever given any? Or did you give Black Pond 10 out of 10? I forget. Uh, you may have given Black Pond 10 out of 10. But still, it's a pretty respectable score for you. So uh, I guess I – okay, I'll go I'll go next then. So honestly, I, this is – I think this film's a masterpiece. I think this is the best horror movie I've ever seen. I think this is the best movie about – folklore that i've ever seen i think this movie is one of the best examples of a film that cultivates its own universe in a really unique and wonderful way i think it's the most visually stunning film i've ever seen once again with the possible exception of some of some of tarkovsky's work and god damn it even though you guys disagree with me i think this is also possibly the scariest film that i've ever seen uh, and for all those reasons, I give it five out of five vultures. Brandon? Okay. Um, well, let me let me preface it with the bad, and then I'll get to the good. I'm not a fan of foreign movies. <laughs> Personally, for me, I I like to get myself wrapped up in a movie so I can watch and enjoy the visuals while listening to the actors and just embracing everything that they have to say, getting every piece of dialogue. I hate subtitles because for me, the subtitles distract from enjoying the visual. And in a movie like Quiet which is such a, the term, but it's so appropriate in this case, such a visual smorgasbord (laughs) of things to enjoy so much to take in and I feel like if I actually spoke Japanese and this is the only time people will ever hear me say this (laughs) if I actually spoke Japanese I feel like I would have enjoyed this movie so much more because I wouldn't have had that distraction Yeah, one thing I'd recommend is going through and, and maybe watching it a second time because the plot first of all the subtitles here are not that intrusive because there really isn't that much dialogue in this movie. And once you've watched it once, you could almost turn the subtitles off and just watch it without even yeah. reading it and just knowing it happening. would definitely be easy enough to follow along. But I mean, that's, that's a very small minor point, And that's, that's more of a personal preference thing for me. Even if there was a dub version somewhere, which I don't think would oh, be all that hard, because like Jesus, you said, there man, isn't that much dialogue. <laughs> well, let's not go down that route. <laughs> I know dangerous, dangerous territory. I'm um, with some of the narration, though. Uh, yeah. The dialogue is one thing, because of course you you want to have the voices sync up with the actors. But for the narration, I feel like if that had been dubbed, it did happen when so much visually was going on. Mm-hmm. 
narration was a detraction there because of the subtitles, because I was trying to follow along with what plot points they're giving out in this narrative dialogue. It's like, oh, I want to follow all of this. I want to absorb all of this. But then what am I missing up in that top corner of the screen? What am I missing over here? Right. That was... Not to interrupt Brandon once again, but um, (laughs) I would like to mention that uh, I do know a bit of Japanese, and though I didn't get all of it, I was able to understand, like, you know, a portion of it. And uh, I did find that some of the subtitles were a bit liberal in their translation of they didn't like Mm -hmm. directly apply Mm. which was kind of interesting for me but the subtitles were very non-intrusive i usually find subtitles somewhat hard to deal with in movies as well but it was this one in particular seemed very easy because like will said there wasn't too much dialogue Boy, guys, you know yeah. the next film I'm going to pick is going to be a Bergman. I've got to do it now, just because I know how much you dis- <laughs> you guys dislike subtitles. If I can get Brandon and AJ, jeez. Uh, but is that is that going to be in Swedish? Oh, do you know Swedish? I know a bit of Swedish, too. What? So that'll also be fun. I can, you know, I can talk about how I know a bit of Swedish and... I'm better than Will. I did. And that'll that'll be my satisfaction, <laughs> so don't worry. Well, you know what? We're done with the podcast. We're just this is the last episode, guys. <laughs> <laughs> just making AJ feel good about it. Uh, we don't want that. Yeah, that's that's not good. No, that that's not what misery that's not what misery tourism is all about. This is not about self satisfaction. <laughs> All right. Anyway, back to back to Brandon's review. Yeah, back back to the review. Um, yeah, I, I, aside from those small quibbles of not really enjoying the foreign film and subtitle aspect, and aside from what I mentioned about the pacing issues, and I'll I'll get more into why the pacing issues were rough for me in the next half. It was really a solid film, visually stunning. Um, the folklore element was was great. Like I said, it, it felt like I was watching Grimm's fairy tales because there are a lot of parallels in the Japanese folklore versus what the Brothers Grimm set forth in Europe. So I would give this a solid four out of five vultures. Wow, I'm shocked, B-Boy. I honestly thought yeah. you were going to either hate this movie or just like grudgingly accept its existence. That, that's a That's a pretty... Uh, that's way more than I expected. And that's with almost falling asleep watching this four times. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to talk a little bit about which segment you almost fell asleep yeah. on in yeah. the next part. Because I have a feeling that I have – I think we'll – when we get into the spoilers, we'll talk about our favorite mm-hmm. ones. And maybe – yeah. And then I, I think – because I think that my choice might be a little bit – I think there might be some disagreement there. Uh, Rudy, your review. Uh, well, okay, so the visually stunning movie, uh, the hand-painted backdrops and all that are great. Uh, certainly, the sound is one thing that I didn't mention before, but that was something that was really that really struck me. And I think yeah. the sound may actually be better than the visuals for me, anyway. I'm really that, glad you mentioned that because I wanted to bring that up 
and I just didn't at all. Aside from one of the segments where I think the sound is just a little too intrusive or just a little bit gets a little bit too much into like, oh, jump scare territory. You right. know, it gets a, I thought the sound design in this was fucking amazing and, and really just the like in some cases there's music, but it's really minimalistic. It's almost like this yeah. really modern, like like very ultra minimalistic music and and it, it will it will be totally absent and then it will come in and it will come in in this very subtle and very effective way why don't you talk a little bit about why you like the sound uh well one thing i liked is the uh the little ricky tick tick sounds they make like almost like skeleton sounds i guess they yeah. be but a lot of those and the way they they pace them throughout the especially throughout the first film yes. there the first one it came in a really, I guess, powerful, not shocking, but really kind of scary way, I guess. There is something that happens, and I don't want to – I'll save this for the spoiler part, but the way they – you were thinking of exactly the same thing as I was. The way they use sound, especially in the last part of the first segment – is really whew, it's it's fucking yeah. brilliant in like unbelievable ways uh but yeah i, I totally agree with you but yeah i mean the sound like i said the sound is great visuals are great uh the dialogue is not bad i mean for i one thing i really choke on with movies is the dialogue and i didn't choke at all during this one so i guess that's a plus <laughs> it's unintrusive you know it's it, unintrusive yeah i mean that's it's not realistic but it's unintrusive i mean that's that's cool. I mean, it's doing what it needs to do. Right. Uh, overall, I really like this movie. Um, I did not really expect to get much out of it uh, aesthetically when I, because I didn't. I just looked at a couple of screenshots of it before I, you know, watched the movie. But aesthetically, it's a pretty beautiful movie. Um, so I would say, excuse me, for uh, reviews, I'd say I would give it two out of two bombs dropped from the Enola Gay. <laughs> That was a lot of build-up for oh. that punchline, man. Oh. God damn it. Oh, wow. At least it got both bombs. It got both bombs, so I mean, there you go. Okay, well, two of two mushroom clouds, then, okay. I guess. Well, how about we put it at that? I said, I, now, does it get the third bomb oh. that... Um, they would have dropped on Tokyo if uh, General. Um, oh, if John von Neumann if, had had his way. If John von Neumann had had his way, yeah. I mean, sure, yeah. We'll give it three of two. We'll, we'll give it two of two bombs dropped from the Enola Gay and the ghost bomb, you know, that John von Neumann wanted to drop. Oh yeah, it was MacArthur wanted to nuke Korea, right? Not he didn't want to drop a third. MacArthur was the one I was thinking of, but oh, he didn't okay. want to drop a third. You're right. It was. Uh, is John von Neumann who? Yeah, I mean, since it's this, that was about obliterating Japanese culture. I mean, this is such a prime example of Japanese culture. You have to give right. it that extra bomb. So. <laughs> right. Um. So. And better yet, it's pre World War II Japanese culture before they started getting into all the weird shit that they're putting out now. Oh yeah. Although this film was made. Um, yeah, it was made in 1965. So, so it was made yeah. well, well, maybe not well after. I mean, if 
if we had just suffered from nuclear <laughs> devastation to 15 years ago, we probably wouldn't say that's well in the past. <laughs> this was yeah, reasonably, yeah. Um, certainly this was. But it was during, traditional culture. Yeah, I mean, what's being presented on yeah. screen is traditional culture. Although I think we could talk a little bit about the modern lens through which at least a couple of these is being interpreted, I think. Hmm. But anyway, so let's move on then to our spoiler-inclusive segment. So now's the time. Uh, if you're planning to watch this film, and it is a long film, but maybe pause the podcast, keep it open in a browser window, run, watch the film, maybe take a couple of days even to watch the film. You know, watch. There is an intermission midway through the film, so watch the first half. Take a break. Watch the second half. Uh, if you have time to watch it, if this podcast, if AJ does her job and this podcast comes out before Halloween, maybe you can even watch it on Halloween. But anyway, hold on and keep keep this podcast open somewhere. And then once you watch the movie, come back to it uh, because now we're going to talk about the movie in a way that. Uh, you know, will contain spoilers. It might ruin your experience. And this is a good movie to go into fresh. Okay, so I think what I want to do first off in this second half is to ask each of you what which of the four films you think you enjoyed the most and which you thought was the scariest. I know some of you weren't scared at all by the movie, but which you think was the most effective at being scary and which you think was the most effective period or just your favorite period. And then after we do that, we'll take the movies one by one in the order they appear in the film. We'll talk about the segments, excuse me, one by one in the order that they appear in the film. We'll talk about them maybe briefly, maybe at length. And then once we've talked about all of them, we'll call it a day and I'll go back to playing Mario Odyssey. Uh, you guys can have can really experience horror because you, apparently you're going to play a game of League of Legends. Which, yeah. um, okay, so uh, starting with AJ, AJ, what was your which film did you think which film which segment which vignette did you think was scariest and which one was your favorite? Okay, so. I would say that I think the last one was the scariest because that was the only one that I felt like actual tension during that one. Um, like it didn't the, just really... interrupt. The last one is in a cup of tea. That's the name yes. of it. Okay. So you think in a cup of tea was the scariest. I think in a cup of tea was the scariest. Um, I'm having difficulty thinking of which one was my favorite. I think I really, I think definitely the second one was my favorite visually, but I wasn't so keen on the story of that one. I really liked the first one and how, like you said, they used sound and mm. I enjoyed the so the story and effects in that one. But third one was just really good overall. I think I would have to say I think I would have to say that my favorite was the first one. Oh really? That's interesting. On just like a sort of visceral level. And then the third one 
and then the second one. But they're they're pretty close. And I'm not sure how the fourth one fits in. It's like extremely hard to rank these. Not gonna lie. But yeah, I'd definitely say the fourth one was the scariest, and I think the first one was my favorite. Okay, great. Um, Brandon. Uh, I think I would agree that uh, the fourth was the scariest, probably because it had the least time to build to the conclusion. I think that was the shortest of the four vignettes, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I feel like that one had the fastest build from and the phrasing and the framing of the story to the actual payoff of. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that the last one, the, if we're talking about length, the third uh, vignette is definitely the longest one. I think that one is oh, by far. close to maybe not a full hour, but it's well over 45 minutes long. Yeah, and yeah. I believe the last one is only like twenty some minutes, maybe half an hour, and the yeah. other, the first and second one fall in between. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's certainly the shortest one. Yeah, um, and personally, my favorite would be the second vignette. The uh, what is it? Woman in Winter, I believe. Uh, the Woman of the was Snow. The, the Woman of the Snow. That was my favorite of the four. Really. That's interesting. Yeah, I felt like it, it. Like I said, I'm such a big fan of folklore and that Grimm's fairy tale present presentation. And to me, I felt like the Woman of the Snow was just spot on as far as pacing, the actual plot itself, where the payoff came, where everything fell into place with that one yeah. vignette. And For me, that yeah, was what perfect. the payoff is too uh even though i saw it coming halfway through the vignette the the eventual payoff was just perfect yeah um and not even the big well we'll talk about this later but not even the big reveal which as you said um pretty much is is 100 telegraphed as i think it should be Mm -hmm. But how the characters respond after the big reveal, I think, really elevates that segment. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. But uh, Rudy, which one you yeah. think was, did you think was the scariest, and which one was your favorite? Yeah, I think the scariest one, hands down, is the first one. Uh, like I said, because of the use of the sound and that stuff, uh, that was definitely the most frightening to me, anyway. Um, my favorite one is probably either the third or the fourth one. Uh, Hochi, the earless, I think is the Hoichi? name. I don't know. Let's have Hoichi. Hoichi. Try to pronounce. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely Hoichi. Hoichi. Okay. Hoichi. Okay. And well, uh, so yeah, so Yasuo, the earless, or uh, <laughs> in a cup of tea, <laughs> would be my favorite ones. Uh, I think I'd have to go with uh. The Hoichi one as a favorite, but the other one's a pretty close second. Great. Uh, and I actually, um, actually, I, I, I half agree with Rudy and I half agree with Brandon. I think for me, the scariest one, the one that really fucked me up was the first one, the black hair. Uh, and as Rudy said, a lot of that is because of the way it uses sound during that final sequence of the film. 
also the way that the um I won't say twist because it's not a twist because we know exactly where it's going basically from minute one, but the way that final reveal or that final, um, you know, basically when he realizes the scene where he realizes that his wife is dead, the way that plays out is fucking terrifying and the make makeup work and stuff after that yeah. is fucking woo. <laughs> that 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 mo- that one really fucking terrified me I, I do think that in a cup of tea was the only other one in the series in the in the far segments that really was a scary story at least in the a more traditional sense so that's probably the second scariest but uh the black hair just was really that that was the one that got me that was the one that kept me up after i watched it um although that ve- the very last scene of in a cup of tea is creepy as shit too my favorite though is, is the woman of the snow for a lot of reasons uh, just everything about that i think mm-hmm excels Mm. (laughs) and and we can talk about it when we talk about that one so let's talk about the black hair then the first vignette the first ghost story and fuck it let's talk about the sound because everyone keeps talking about the sound um yeah yeah the sound in this segment is incredible uh does anyone want to say anything about that before i go on a on a diatribe before i like ran about it for 20 minutes (laughs) Uh, Rudy, you, you seem no, to. I think this is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just there's something about the sound of those kendo sticks or whatever it was hitting together that just uh, that made it really frightening and also somehow um, played up the visuals too because the way I guess the way they cut the edits and stuff like that and use that with the sound was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's oh. this um, cracking. Yeah, uh, maybe it maybe is kendo sticks, or there's this like auditory, this really abrasive like like I, I I can't I can't make the noise, but like clucking, like cracking, like noise yeah. that appears. And mm-hmm. it, actually, you it, it's kind of in the beginning of the film a little bit. This very like these very subtle auditory cues. But they really kick in in an amazing way at the end of the film when he's reunited with his wife, but before he realizes that she's deceased, (laughs) uh, when he's basically having his little rendezvous, his reconciliation with his ghost wife. (laughs) Yeah. And just throughout that whole sequence, which... um, superficially is this really tender scene right but every once in a while you hear that (laughs) right yeah and and you're like boy and that just sets you on edge and you just know something is going to happen you know and the and and it's almost um subconscious like it just Mm -hmm. builds up Mm -hmm. to that moment that you know is coming uh, and, and so the first time I watched this film, it was just that like sense of escalating dread, dread when I was hearing that. Uh, but 
the second time I watched it, knowing where it's going, when I heard those cues again, I was, and they happen during scenes when he's like holding her or he like brings her close to him and you mm-hmm. like, and you realize, at least I think that those could, that could be that since she, she is a desic, in fact, a desiccated corpse, that could be the sound of her physically breaking down. Those could be her bones. Yeah. snapping as he holds her during those yep. moments of tender reconciliation and Jesus <laughs> you know just thinking about that I mean it could also be a kind of it, it could try to evoke the way the house is falling apart too there there's yeah. a scene afterwards when he steps on a board when he's in the like destroy the ruins of his house after the, mm-hmm. the glamour or the illusion is broken and you hear it crack and it's the same kind of noise. So that could have been the, and you can see there's like this in the, in their like bedroom where they were lying on the floor, like in the illusion, it was like, it looked just like it must have been old days. Like everything was pristine and perfect. But once the, the illusion breaks, there's this hollowed out section of the floor where her body is lying and the, where the boards have all given way. And it's not clear, like, was it already that way or did that happen during yeah. the night, you know? And so you realize that that sound, you know, that cl- that clicking, clacking, whatever, that int- little subtle intrusive noise was an indication of what was really happening all along, you know? And, and I just think that's like great yeah yeah it's it's such a great subtle auditory punctuation yeah because that was really how that felt to me was that's that's the punctuation mark on every visual statement being made in that story yeah Mm -hmm. aj did you want to get in on the sound um basically i agree with everything everything that's been said and that's it. Awesome. <laughs> uh, here, here's a question. How do you guys feel about this film as an introduction to this collection, to this anthology, as the first film? I think that was definitely a good jumping off point. I feel like that really introduced you to what they were planning on doing with the rest of the of footage that was going to follow. Um, I think it's definitely one way to ease you in and at the same time deliver a, a good amount of that tension and really let you know that this isn't going to be a walk in the park to enjoy. This isn't going to be a walk in the park to just sit through and watch. It's going to be something that's going to demand your attention and make you pay attention one way or another, whether it's by keeping you enthralled with these great visuals or mm. by really just hitting you over the head with that sound. <laughs> yeah. Like the, you, it would, the minute you get distracted, that sound just pulls you back in. Yeah. Mm. And I think How'd... that was just really well executed. Right. Uh, AJ, Rudy, about this film as an introduction to the anthology as the first film or the first segment. Um, I think the order of it was really well done. Um, I think I think it's interesting that they sort of framed the movie with the two scariest ones. Yeah. Um, 
like I mean the last one definitely belonged in last place and I feel like the first one definitely belonged in the first place yeah um, I agree the middle two also seemed to belong very well where they were situated just the sort of like the rhythm of the movie as a whole seems better with the breaks that they've inserted yeah and the first one does a really good job at kicking everything off it's also one of the more um like brandon said more demanding but also like more um obviously scary stories so it kind of draws you in whereas if you know the second one had been first people might have uh, possibly tuned out Woody? Uh, i think visually it's a really good introduction uh, to the techniques and stuff they're using in the film but uh, thematically i think it's kind of maybe intentionally misleading as far as what the rest of the film is about um, because it's you know it's a typical scary story when the other ones really aren't even the last one isn't really like a typical like you know like well holy shit he's sleeping with a dead body type of story <laughs> right right yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you there. I I do think that this is a great introduction to the film exactly for that reason, because this is a very traditional ghost story. It's a very traditional Eastern ghost story. It's a very traditional Western ghost story. This is almost like the quintessential mm-hmm. ghost story. Um, mm. And because it's not quite as weird as some of the later films, it's a really good point of entry, I think, to the other films uh, or the other segments or vignettes in the anthology. I also think that it... Oh, sorry, what was that? It was very accessible. Yeah, it, it's it's probably because the most... That. Yeah, exactly. It probably is the most accessible film. I also think that it... There's this weird thing in terms of like style that happens in this movie or in terms of um like the degree to which they commit to the the like aesthetic extremes of this movie like the the hand-painted backdrops and the heavy makeup work and all that an interesting thing about this film or this um this segment is that it's actually very subdued in that respect for the most part it's still gorgeous looking, but the 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 like sort of surreal backdrops only pop up, I think, maybe twice in the film in a very subtle way. Um, the kind of haunted house uh, that appears in this segment is really atmospheric, but it's not particularly like weird and supernatural looking. And so I think in that way, yeah. it brings it start. You start almost you start this collection almost in the real world. And then by the end of this film, you've kind of entered into the realm of the supernatural, into the realm of folklore. And this film kind of guides you there by seeming more mundane, by seeming, I I mean, nothing supernatural occurs in this film until the very end, which is not true of the other films in the collection, which generally open Mm -hmm. 
with the ghost in one way or another. This movie, the ghost doesn't appear until this, this in this vignette, the ghost doesn't appear until the very end. We know where it's going because we've heard stories like this before, mm-hmm. but it doesn't become a ghost story until its last few minutes. And I think because of that, this really is this is kind of like the journey into the woods, right? This is you start out in a familiar place at the beginning of the movie and by the end of the first segment you're in a deeply unfamiliar place and so you're prepared for the movies for the uh, short films for the segments for the stories that come after it anything else uh i've i've got to bring up the incredible makeup work in those last few minutes of this story yeah Mm -hmm with the way that the protagonist just starts to age. I know. Crumbling. That was one of the most magnificent things I have seen done in films in a long, long time. Because the transformation was so gradual over so many of the jump cuts. It was just masterful. That's true. I mean, it a gradual on one sense, but also so extreme. And the other, where by the last yeah, scene, yeah. he looks like he's 80 years old. <laughs> uh, and the way that they start by making his skin so pale, and then they did like they start with mm-hmm. you know taking his hair out, and they just it is pretty impressive. And you think that all of that was done without the help of of any kind of con- it's all done with makeup. There's no con- computer assisted graphic work here. It's just yeah. all 100% makeup. Yeah, it's it's a testament to the value of practical effects, and that's something that you that you hear about so often in a lot of filmmakers even today that can accomplish so much that computer generated work just can't even begin to touch. Mm-hmm. And that was such a perfect example of that because if that was being done with CGI, you would have that awful young Princess Leia in Rogue One uncanny valley effect happening. You have a cartoon character sitting across from live human beings, and you know that something is very, very wrong with this. Right. It would be the wrong kind of uncanny... Yeah, it would be the wrong kind of uncanny valley, not the right kind of uncanny valley, which is where this film sort of dwells. Yeah. Yeah. On a related note... I have to talk about the visual of his dead wife and the three shots. Well, I mean, if he kind of breaks down both quickly and slowly over the course of the last couple of minutes of the film, the way that it cuts to her first and she's this kind mm-hmm. of desiccated mummy and then it cuts to her again and she's a skeleton and then it cuts mm-hmm. to her and she's gone. She's just here. Yeah. That I thought that was a really tremendous visual effect. Yeah, yeah, and really authentically scary in a way that a lot of bodies in films aren't authentically scary. Um, also, about that moment, this film does something that I really like, uh, and it does it a couple of times. If this was a contemporary horror film 
it would have should he would have woken up and he would have like looked over at her and maybe pulled the blanket aside and it would have quickly cut to an image of her dead you know like, oh! you know and it would have been a jump scare but this movie does everything it can to deny that junk jump scare because what it actually does is first there's a slow buildup of his him removing the the blanket and then we see him react and we watch him react before we see her and i think that's cool because it as i said what's amazing is we th see him act horrified and which would generally be a pretty big no-no because then whatever visual you see has to live up to that expectation but mm. the amazing thing is the visual does live up to that but also it it doesn't it, it's so just not cheap to do it that way right the cheap thing to do is to show someone something horrific when they're not expecting it and spook them you know get them to jump and the fact that it does everything it can to prepare us for what mm -hmm. it shows us and the thing it shows us still makes your skin crawl yeah i think is is spectacular yeah definitely any anything else uh aj you haven't really did you want to get in on any of this uh and I agree. I appreciate that it's not cheap. It's very not cheap. It it shows you the the reactions before it shows the effects. Um, I will say that the when it does show you the dead wife, I wasn't like it didn't really make my skin crawl. Really, the one image from that story that did stick with me was like um when he exited the the house as he was trying to run away from like his wife's hair <laughs> and oh, yeah. um when he turns around and like the hair is positioned in the air as yeah it's looking at him and that I think that would be the closest it, the movie got to really getting under my skin. Huh. Yeah, that was a great visual. I will say there is one, just because I don't want, you know, I, I don't want people to think this film is totally above repro reproach and critique. There is one small visual effect in that final sequence that doesn't work or at least hasn't aged well and that's after he sees her there's a moment where like a little clump of hair jumps at him <laughs> and that's yeah. a little that ends up being a little yeah. funnier than it is scary yeah. Um, yeah. i think i yeah. laughed aloud during that there's a couple times where like the hair is like going for his throat and you, you just can't help but laugh it's just it's just kind of funny <laughs> It's yeah, a little overdone, but considering everything else, I still think this is a pretty scary, uh, pretty scary segment. I think what I enjoyed the most about about this first vignette is how it dovetails into the genre of body horror. Mm. Actually, seeing, like you said, watching the the dead wife go from being the the mummy to the skeleton to the nothingness i mean that's that's creepy enough but watching 
the rapid deterioration of the protagonist for me, I think was one of the most effective types of horror that you can really run into in a, in a movie because you're not necessarily expecting that. As you get to the point where he's reconnecting with, with the first wife, you kind of, you kind of know just from the general tone, okay, there's going to be, bad shit's about to go down. This isn't going to be a happy ending because it's not that kind of story. And yeah. you can kind of mentally prepare yourself for watching the wife deteriorate into nothingness and to actually have been dead the whole time. To actually watch the protagonist go through that transformation as well, I think that was more that was more viscerally jarring for me. Yeah than anything else and that's a fantastic thing yeah i i i I totally agree um one thing that i want to talk about here and i kind of wish i had brought this up in the first half because i think it's one of the major themes of the film and i think it's one of the things that the film does really effectively uh is the way in which this movie um makes the ghosts very human and in some ways also makes some of the humans ghostly like it is really good at blurring the line between death and undeath um between the living and the dead or between the natural and the supernatural like so many films about ghosts do everything they can to make the ghost scary and almost nothing to make the ghost human, even though they were apparently human at one point. Uh, they just, like, usually the ghost is either very, like, some kind of abstract killing machine or some kind of abstract source of horror, some kind of unknowable, like, thing. Or they're reduced to a very simple motivation, like, you know this ghost wants revenge on the person who killed her and you know, or, or maybe she wants revenge on anyone who looks somewhat like the person, you know, it's always like this ghost is out for revenge. This ghost is sad because whatever, you know, tragic backstory, yada, 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 you know, they're all reduced to just this one like little point. They never have the richness of an actual human character, but all of the ghosts in this movie all the supernatural beings in this movie are remarkably like complete nuanced human seeming <laughs> beings, you know? And that was one of the things that really jumped out to me in this first segment is during that reconciliation scene with his wife, so much of the attention is not just on his feelings, but on her feelings. Hmm. And it makes you wonder you know, how much of her old pathologies, how much of her old like it's really interesting how desperate she is during that scene for reconciliation, right? Mm. Almost like how willing she is to just accept him back. Yeah. And mm. then how vengeful the the hair ghost <laughs> seems to be at the end. You know, like mm. it, it just it's so complex there and it she it's such there's like that really interesting dichotomy between like her, obviously her craving 
like why why has she been sticking around for all this time right why is she still inhabiting that house why is her spirit still there and that's really something that get that so many ghost stories are about and the answer is usually so pat and so superficial in ghost stories but by really fleshing her out and giving her that long reconciliation sequence with him and then undercutting it later by just how malicious the hair is <laughs> like that i thought was really effective and then of course his transformation at the end into something that's not quite human anymore or that seems more like maybe a ghost than a human is a kind of blurring yeah. of the line in the opposite direction yeah definitely uh, anyone want to say anything else about this segment before we move on to the next one? No, I think I'm good with that one. Nope. Fine. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the women. Uh, the, excuse me, the woman of the snow, which is the second segment, which is about a young a young guy who has an encounter with some kind of. I'm not sure if she's a ghost or if she's some kind of otherworldly spirit but anyway he has an encounter with a some kind of supernatural being who basically appears in the form of a young beautiful women, woman and who can kill men with her breath who can basically freeze men to death with her breath and he has this horrifying encounter with her and then later he ends up marrying her and having <laughs> a happy marriage with her and, and then until he he reveals he, until he unknowingly tells her the story of how they met, which is really a fascinating sort of thing. But anyway, how, how did you guys feel about this one? I want to give you guys a chance to talk about it before I talk about why it's my the, favorite. This one for me, like I said, this was the most, this was the most perfect of those fairy tale moments, those folk tale moments. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say that she was some form of nature spirit in line with the whole concept of if you tell anyone about this I'll come back and kill you that's, that's a classic archetype that's a classic trope and it's a classic because it's such a it's such a functional thing and a functional allegory for nature in and of itself that hmm. with nature nature will fuck you up yeah <laughs> That's that's like a in all of these classic tales in anything dealing with mythology in general, because of course mythology and and folk tales in general were designed to explain aspects of nature that yeah. we as humans hadn't quite grasped yet. Right, right, exactly. So having that that unknowable force of nature take an interest in a human that's a, that's a classic that's something you see in the european folk tales you see it in greek mythology you see it so frequently and yeah. i think this one really just hit that niche in that aspect um aj rudy um let's start with aj um i i love this one visually it's absolutely stunning the scene where um there were eyes in the snowy forest. Yeah. That that's gonna stick with me like for a very long time. Like that's like an experience itself, just seeing that scene. Um the story I wasn't actually so fond of. Um 
it was very very predictable fairy tale um it was very predictable fairy tale story and you could definitely see where it was going the payoff was um somewhat subversive i didn't completely expect that but overall it just didn't engage me too much uh rudy all right so uh I've looked at pictures of Undertale fan art, uh, the ones with the, where the skeleton has a big erect penis, and uh, that informed the way I viewed this, and that informed what I'm going to say, so I'll just get that out of the way. Sure. Oh, uh, <laughs> I think that a lot of this was, well, the way it came across to me anyway, um, a lot of it had to do with maybe a sexual obsession with the supernatural. Huh, which, that's, uh, that's interesting. Let's say more, tell me more about that. Well, I mean, first of all, the, when the guy first encounters a ghost, uh, he's with his mentor, the older man, who then dies. And you might say that uh, he, at that time, was kind of like still a boy and not a man or whatever, you know, in that sense. Yeah, there's and a real coming-of-age like, kind of thing going on here. Yeah, yep. And that kind of uh that was that encounter with the ghost that was it's almost like uh you know like His a stand in for dream? like a sex <laughs> yeah or a wet dream or the first sexual <laughs> encounter kind of yeah um and then when the ghost when and then she the way she says you know don't tell anyone ever about this you know don't don't tell anyone you know don't you know don't talk about this you know <laughs> it's almost like uh it's almost like a uh, like an abuse situation. It seems like to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because huh. especially where she then later, you know, when he when he's telling her the story, and you know, he's like, and then he catches shit for it. He catches supernatural shit for retelling the story of. It's like it seems to enforce that you know, hey, don't talk about this, you know, type of thing. But at the same time, he's still very attracted to this ghost okay. that he, uh, you know. To the point where when she comes back masquerading as a human, like he's immediately drawn to her. Right. And you're right that this is a very – like this is a much more sexual story than the first one even though they're both about relationships. Uh, you can even see it in the first scene when he meets her – well, one of the first scenes after he meets her as a quote-unquote human – like there's that weird like erotic leg washing scene where he's like fixate like he's watching her wash her legs and her feet and that is and then of course this is the only um scene in the collection the only um story or um vignette in the anthology that contains an actual sex scene uh which is interesting but i think you're definitely right that there's this kind of ghost story as erotic metaphor thing going on here. Anyone want to get in on Rudy's um, Rudy's sort of theory, theory of this um, this segment I think as that's, a sort of coming of age I think that's sex definitely story? an interesting take on it. That's definitely not something that I would have gone to with as my uh, as my go-to explanation for what was going on in the story but i think that definitely it makes sense in a weird way uh there's definitely an element of that of that fixation and that dangerous attraction element which i think does also play into the whole concept of 
of that pact with nature that really avoid you feel drawn to it for some reason and you don't necessarily understand why so that's uh that's a very interesting take on it yeah i think that's a, i i really i didn't think that at least not exact not in that exact way when i was watching it but i do think that does a lot to explain what's going on here and certainly that moment that moment of transition from adolescence into adulthood is huge for ghost stories mm. you know it, it and oh definitely like how many different movies in how many different movies do the ghosts serve as a sort of metaphor for puberty <laughs> you know or, or even like and, and there's all this stuff in folklore about like poltergeist phenomena manifesting itself during puberty like and, and, and like how many slasher films are about <laughs> high school students you know or college students and in how many horror films is sexuality either foregrounded or backgrounded in a significant way? I, I think definitely. Uh, as far as my feeling about the film is concerned, um, first of all, I, I want to double down on what AJ said, which is this is, I think, possibly the most beautiful segment in a really beautiful film. Uh, oh, the blizzard sequence in the beginning with the the painted eyes in the – as someone else mentioned, in the sky. Uh, but all of the skies in this movie are unbelievable. There's one – there's one really fucked up moment uh, <laughs> in the film where, first of all, the sky is this tremendous, like, yellow – yellowish orange mixed with like blackish brown color that frankly to me looked like a Rothko painting and uh <laughs> that the rest of you may not think that's a compliment but since I'm a huge Rothko fan it was like Rothko sky but on top of that there's this pair of like piercing eyes in the sky and it's framed in a way so that he's facing towards the camera so he can't see them <laughs> and it's this really um really fucking like messed up moment and it's one of those moments where the film is if we didn't know already the film is very clearly informing us of the connection between her and this you know blizzard spirit that he met at the beginning of the film but it's also showing us how completely clueless he is, right? Because he's facing us. He doesn't see it, but we can see the huge eyes yeah. in the sky looking at him. And, and that was just a really effective moment, I thought. Uh, but the thing I loved about this and why it kind of ranks number one for me is I think that this is like an incredibly modern – I won't say dissection, but maybe subversion of ghost stories. First of all, that line that w between like ghost and human that was blurry in the first segment is totally annihilated in this one. Like she oh, yeah. becomes so human in her interactions with him that she bears three children for him or, or yeah. with him. I mean, depending on how. And I thought that was just a <laughs> tremendous detail, especially considering how it ends. Like she has. Right. So fully committed to her role as human she's become so human that she's actually had three human question mark children See, that's the other thing that really creeped me out is the uh, the idea of like not only like did she have children with him but like 
I don't know, like the way he cared about her, I guess, and the way she kind of seemed to care about him. And there's that kind of, I guess, almost, you know, gender role reversal, I guess, if you want to, if you want to call it that, like she's the one leaving, you know, him with the children. Leaving him with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, and and that's, that's another great representation of of that trope too, where you get that where you get that in so much of the mythology, where these supernatural forces will choose to spend time with a mortal, and it never ends well for the mortal. It never goes well. They always wind up leaving, or they leave a wake of destruction behind them. Yeah. Children are often a, a factor in those stories, too. I mean, you see that all the time, especially in the Greeks. You know, God knows the gods in Greece just fucked anything that walked and left their seed in, you know, whatever the hell they wanted to. And it always <laughs> seemed to take root somehow. So, I mean, that was kind of a, it was kind of an interesting. Right. You're right. I mean, that is very much rooted in mythology. The idea of supernatural beings intermingling and interbreeding with humans Mm -hmm. but within the context of what you expect i think from a ghost story that was really shocking to me Uh, and i think that it was just this like the degree to which as i said before she becomes human but yeah uh, you were talking about the ending and how usually in these stories like you say they leave destruction in their wake um what i really thought was wonderfully subversive about this story and very like modern or maybe even like postmodern or at least very like modern in the way that it, in its consideration for human psychology is mm-hmm. how this ends and how she responds when he does what she's ordered him not to do and he tells the story first of all mm-hmm. just the very fact that he betrays her to her out of love for her, right? The, the fact that the transgression yeah. is actually simultaneously an act of intimacy, that he's become so close to her, that their relationship is so perfect that he feels like he can share this thing with her, this thing he could tell nobody else. And the fact that the act of doing that is what destroys their relationship is just so like, wonderfully ironic and profound and just perfect like and so above and beyond what you expect from a story like this mm-hmm. like so like ambiguous and complex in a way that the payoffs to these stories usually aren't but the fact that i i feel like most other movies i mean it, it, they've set it up already if you say this i'm going to kill you so the the you were expecting her to make good on that promise what you're you're fearing for his life in that moment but what she does to him is so much worse (laughs) like yeah Yeah. and and so much more effective than killing him and and so much more true that she actually first of all it's psychologically true for her that she would not want to kill him and leave the children Mm -hmm. with nobody it's psychologically profound in that like she is it's another place where she's showing real human emotion she can't do it oh very much so but it's also so fucked <laughs> the way she just walks out because first of all that's fucking like even uh, just that is in some ways a fate worse than death for him 
Because first of all, here is like this perfect, wonderful, intimate relationship he has, and he loses it in a second. And he has to live with that loss for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And he has to live with the fact that he he, he never like he, 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 he was with her for a decade and he it never he never made the connection before. And here he was living with this otherworldly thing. And that's going to be with him forever. And he's going to be reliving that moment in a hundred different ways for the rest of his life. He's going to be saying, yeah. first of all, yeah. on some level, he's going to be saying why did I say that <laughs> forever? He's going to be like, why did I say that? If I just yeah. hadn't said that, I would have been so happy until the day I died. But on top right. of that, he's going to be thinking, oh shit. Like, <laughs> like I slept with that. I was with that was sleeping beside me for 10 years. So, I mean, the, at least the first guy only had to deal with the fact that he slept with his dead wife for one night. This guy <laughs> was with a ghost for 10 years. Right. In every single yeah. conceivable way, not just like sexually, but like romantically, like they had meals and just sat around the table and ate together. He made yeah. shoes. He made these sandals for her. But the real fucking kicker, though, is that in the morning, he's going to get like he's going to get up and he's going to have to. Like, first of all, he's been left alone as a single father, but he's going to have to make breakfast for three kids and have them walk into the room and look at them and realize, I don't know how human my own children are. You know, yeah, I don't know yeah, what yeah, my yeah, own cool. children are. And I can't tell my own children, like, they're going to, where's mommy? <laughs> what are you going to say? What the fuck are you going to say? Like, yeah. anything you say could potentially put them at risk. But also opens up the whole can of worms of you have to having to try to figure out what your own children are. Right. And, 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 that, and yeah. And if he treats them any differently or gives them any reason to complain about him as a father, she'll come back and kill his ass. Kill him. Oh, yeah. Kill exactly. him. And then what happens to the kids? Right. <laughs> and so that's it. So he has to like carry this tremendous psychological burden around and just the whole way that plays out like i think makes this this kind of quintessential modern modern in like the modernist sense ghost story yeah and i just yeah, was I mean, totally it, like enthralled with that it was mm -hmm. such a perfect a perfect execution of the phrase death comes slowly <laughs> yeah <laughs> because that like you said that is an agonizing agonizing excruciating amount of emotional weight dropped on somebody that is just absolute emotional brutality right and, and it was so beautifully executed and he never gets to re-enter the human world he'll never no. be able to fully re-enter because even with no, her being gone no. there's no coming back and I, I don't know. I, I just thought that would was uh, great. It, anything else anyone wants to say about this second one? The, the I want to comment show. on the very, very last visual. Oh, yeah. Mm. Because to me, that was one of those poignant moments. The sandals out and sets them in the snow, and you just watch the snow gradually cover them. Yeah, it just consumed And just that. a few quick cut shots. That to me was a poetic ending, and I love that about that vignette. Yeah, it was a wonderfully poetic uh, concluding scene. Anything else? 
Uh, okay, let's move on to Hoichi the Earless. And Rudy, this was your favorite, right? Oh, uh, yeah, either this one or the last one, I'd say. So. so why don't you start the discussion for this one? All right, well, uh, I don't really have actually much to say about this one, um, except I I like the, uh, I guess, one of the themes, or I guess maybe it's a theme. I'm not really sure what this, like, what this really was trying to say, but I think it might have been something to do with, like, the way art kind of tends to consume someone and tends to make them, you know, maybe blind to certain things, I guess. Um, I guess, um, like the whole, the way he kind of is really desperate to get his, uh, to get, you know, to have someone listen to his, his playing, you know, his recital. This is a guy that's memorized, you know, like this whole epic battle sequence, this whole, you know, play that has to do with or i guess it's a musical it's or a something. ballad yeah, a ballad yeah. yeah and he's memorized this i mean how often does he get to play that to those monks i mean probably not very often they don't give a shit right <laughs> they don't give a shit about that so i mean this yeah. is this is like his only outlet is like these ghosts this kind of ephemeral like thing that you know he you know no one else can really see yeah. and then you know there's the idea when he comes back from it they, they scold him and they're like you know you know, you've been in a graveyard the whole time. Like, what the fuck were you doing out there just playing to the stones or whatever? Right. You know, I mean, it seems kind of like a take on uh, on maybe, like, kind of struggle of an artist or, like, someone who struggles with, uh, you know, creative work, maybe. Right. How desperate any artist is for an audience, especially an appreciative audience, right? Yeah. Someone who can get the – and I mean, what – better audience could you imagine like he is yeah it's a captive literally captive audience i mean it's like not only literally captive but he is playing this historical ballad to the actual people who lived this event and they think it's the best telling of it they've ever heard can you imagine that as an artist to have like there's no better no better audience and to have them eat up everything up like that no wonder it's so addictive right no wonder he would be totally consumed by that even though he didn't know on some level maybe he did yeah but yeah it seems it's just like the perfect thing like like you said like people were saying earlier like halfway between fantasy and reality i guess it's like did he imagine this or did he you know it you know it seems as you're going through it you're wondering is this like something he's imagined you know or is it something that he uh you know he's like wishful thinking basically you know yeah. or is it real you know so right. i really like the fact that um they kind of do devote particular attention towards letting you know that like it is real because um like the the monks fully acknowledge it and they kind of like immediately believe him <laughs> like yeah. there's no there's no tedious <clears throat> debate of like oh no it was definitely real and they're like oh no you're just imagining things that wasn't present and i appreciated yeah. that they just kind of went immediately to oh yeah that's that's what happens you know <laughs> like if, if he goes the ghost he's gonna <laughs> fuck you up you know <laughs> yeah like you you listen to him once that was that was dumb all right now what are we gonna do to take care of this <laughs> i appreciated that and it made it feel very it was a, a very strange feeling and also um 
the other two monks following him and both seeing and also not seeing the same thing that he was being sort of integrated into. Oh, that scene mm-hmm. is incredible. When yeah. they yeah. find him in the graveyard and he is still like, it, with a, at least within his perception, he's still in the company of this like phantom audience. And then mm-hmm. that fades away. And what they see and what he sees and what, like the way the scenes basically almost dissolve into each other like the ghosts are left standing there in the graveyard at one point and and at another point they're just these like spectral arms floating around and it it is just really definitely changes from what it was before they like those two um characters appeared at like the same steps that sort of transfer into the ghostly world so you know like there's some real aspect but you're not exactly sure who can see what or what's appearing to who right but it Mm -hmm. really blends that supernatural into like the reality of the world in a way that feels like that, that that's really amazing but also it feels like how the japanese view spirits um, mm. as it's just sort of like a thing that you know happens like you know yeah. <laughs> you gotta do what you have to do to deal with them but then you know leave them alone for the most part but if you fuck up you know just deal with it right and the idea yeah. that this is a world that's almost overlaid on our own right right absolutely yeah one thing i definitely like is the part where uh like aj said you know they they don't fuck around with like you know wondering whether this is real or not in fact the priest actually says you know like a ghost visited here the other night that is a fact he says <laughs> that is a fact <laughs> I, I, thought that, I thought that was pretty cool where they're just like that that's a good you know way to to kind of transition into the and then at the end you know he becomes rich and famous so that you know, again, the kind of wish fulfillment thing. I mean, that's that I thought was pretty cool yeah. because it's like, hey, you know, it's this guy that, uh, you know, went out there, he played for the ghosts, and then uh, they, they ripped his ears off. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then the boom still, comes. Yeah. The reward for all of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a, I guess, a happy ending. <laughs> it is. I, and that's one of the things I also loved about all the stories in this collection is that horror movies tend to make you like they work because of the fear of death right the idea Mm -hmm. is that you put a protagonist in harm's way or multiple protagonists and then you threaten them with death or you kill them and people get scared The, the 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 amazing thing about this movie is that even though it's a it's a ghost story none of the protagonists die and none of the central characters in fact unless you consider right. the wife from the first segment die the penalty that these people face for entering this other world is never death it's always like profound transformation which i think is very true to folklore and a lot yeah. more interesting than threatening mm-hmm. someone with like you know being killed by a ghost mm-hmm. uh, and in the first one you know it, it, this guy is totally like in the the black hair the the you know, the samurai is totally psychologically and physically ravaged by this experience, but he leaves it alive. In the second mm-hmm. one, and we talked about the psychological weight that 
he's going to have to bear for the rest of his life. And here in the third one, Hoichi, I mean, he gets fucked up, <laughs> but yeah. he, he ends up getting a remark like it, it like his art is transformed by it in a positive way that makes him legendary. And, right. and that's interesting. It's actually – you could potentially see the first two films in the, – the first – yeah, short films. The first two uh, segments in this anthology as being films about relationships, like about romantic relationships or human relationships. Mm -hmm. And then the second two about being about art, I think, about whether it's storytelling or about about – art and like the creative process right and in the first two movies like you get two different views of like or really like of love gone wrong in some ways or love twisted by the supernatural or love like like you have one story about a man who makes what he later realizes is a really stupid selfish selfish choice and comes back and, and tries to make amends with his wife and does, but then pays the consequences anyway for his actions. Mm. And then in the second movie, you have this kind of perfect idyllic relationship that's destroyed by this one moment of both in ironically, both intimacy and indiscretion. Right. Mm. Uh, and then in the second one, you have, the first one is the, the in the second half. The first one is the story about this this basically tortured artist, right, who through his encounter with the supernatural pays a tremendous physical price, but becomes rich and famous. Hmm. And then the second story is about someone who seems very secure in his art, uh, but has to deal with the fact that he's his story is left unfinished, and like that, just the whole like question of what does that mean, you know, to have a yeah. piece of art that's mm -hmm. never completed. But mm -hmm. it's uh, it is it is I think that's another way in which the the structure of this movie works. It's almost like mm -hmm. two pairs of films. Yeah, but, yeah, that's that's a good way to frame it. Um, for me, watching the vignettes in the order that they were in made me think of meal. Think of you know, your appetizer. That oh, meal. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. Appetizer. You know, the black hair. That's, that's your appetizer. That's what gets the taste buds going. It gets you excited to eat the rest of the meal. <laughs> the, the woman in the winter, the woman of winter. And that's kind of like your salad course. That's, that freshens up the palate. It gets you, it gives you something very familiar and something that you're very used to. It's nutritious. Too. The, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nutritious. It's got, it's got some soul to it. It's got, it's got that nutrients that you need to Hoichi the earless. And that's, that's the entree. That is the meat of the movie. Yeah. It's kind of ironic for me to say that because for me, Hoichi was the one that I had the hardest time staying focused on but in a weird it was in a weird way because i really did enjoy it but at the same time left me at a point where it was almost lengthy for me i wish it would have been either shorter longer and been its own standalone film hmm. yeah balancing I, point i think calling it the entree is very appropriate because this is definitely like 
the beefiest <laughs> segment. You know, this is, uh, and the richest one maybe too at the same time. Uh, is it too long? I don't think so. Although I will say that there's an alternate cut of this film that cuts about 20 minutes out of the total mm. film, uh, mm. the total running time of the film. And I think the most cuts are probably in that version, which was the version I saw first, uh, are probably in the Hoichi segment. They cut out the the scene where they find the body on the beach. They cut out that long, mm. very Japanese funeral sequence. <laughs> um, they also, interestingly, in that one, the black hair ends very soon after he discovers his dead wife, like the scene, the moment where he stumbles o away and looks at his reflection in the well, it actually ends there, which I think oh. kind of does a disservice to that one. Uh, yeah, they, definitely. They cut the nude scene out of uh, the woman of the snow, which I think was done because this was a cut for Western audiences at a time when like, uh, bare breasts were not really that acceptable in Western film. Um, and the scene where they visit her mother's grave, well, her mother-in-law's grave, rather, mm -hmm. which I think was another thing that was cut just because it was too Japanese. Uh, and there are no cuts, I believe, to In a Cup of Tea, which how could they, you know, how could they cut anything? It's so um, lean as it is. Mm. But it is interesting that they do probably cut five or six minutes i think out of this one in that version but i do actually enjoy the length of this one because it feels even though it's much shorter than than a standard film it feels epic when played against when played in the company of the other parts of yeah. this collection and i think that's very intentional because the subject mm -hmm. matter is epic like in the most traditional sense of the term, <laughs> you, you know, and, and it in fact deals with someone reciting an epic, an epic ballad, you know, <laughs> and so for it to feel that much larger, I think is, mm -hmm. is very intentional mm -hmm. and effective. Yeah. Yeah. I also wasn't really a huge fan of, of the repetitive aspect of it. In that this is he goes personal back and he taste. goes back and he goes back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's more of a personal taste because I'm not only am I not really a fan of dealing with subtitles because of the distraction from the visuals, mm -hmm. I'm really not a fan of musicals, even when it's as appropriate as it is in Hoichi the Earless, because it is. It's very appropriate that he is continuously performing ballad. It's it's fitting. But for me, it's just like musicals. Oh boy, I, I don't know, Rudy. What did you think of that? I like the the song, um, the song element of it. it. I thought it was definitely appropriate. Um, the way they intersperse the battle and you know the song is pretty cool too. I mean, just visually. Yeah, and the way that his like phantom audience evolves over the course of his yeah. performance of the ballad. Like they start off, it's a very sort of traditional, almost cart setting and they're dressed in a very like um, formal way. And they're very kind of cold and detached in appearance. And by 
the point that you almost get to where he's going to be interrupted by the people who are searching the graveyard for him. Like they've totally transformed into their battle garb and the background has gone from being this kind of washed out color to being this bright, vibrant red color. And and like it's, and like they've all, they've got their battle makeup on and these like tortured expressions. And by the end, like the, the the stage there is lined with their corpses and it's like they're reliving the battle while he performs his, ballad his his musical yeah. performance of the battle and that was just i really loved that yeah i thought that was a really nice touch too because you see it a lot in cultures as well when you see this of tension to the spirits and you really focus on them what drove them in life and you apply that concept of and you see it a lot especially when it comes to dealing with uh, deities and mythology Mm-hmm. strong is the amount of worship that you give them and seeing that transformation of these spirits from being kind of weak and drained to suddenly having all of this life and vitality through this song and through the artistic representation of it i think that's just mm-hmm. such a great visual representation of that whole concept right. yeah and also their need to like experience this retelling of their lives is another way in which this film really humanizes the ghosts. Uh, but I want to get AJ, AJ's been on the outside looking in for a while here, and I want to get her involved in this. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I can definitely see how it could be repetitive, as there are two different times when he performs the same song, but there are subtle differences between those two performances it feels and that's particularly um outlined by uh the visuals during those times and there's a particular scene that i'd like to highlight during the second performance um where it sort of focuses on hoichi on his platform and um like the the surrounding area around that platform like you're not sure like it's mist but you're not sure if it's just you know oh yeah floor underneath and then oh right certain parts of the mist part and you see water and it strikes you like oh man that was so effective it just like gets like right to your core of that water and the mist something about that is just so surreal and yeah very effective like really striking like i'd go back and watch the entire movie just to kind of experience those few seconds again yeah that's what tumblr gifts are for but honestly though i i agree with you and i mean we've been saying time and time again how visually captivating and striking this film is so i don't think we need to relive that too much but this is along with the um the woman of the snow one of the most visually striking and just incredible segments also the way that they interspersed um these very traditional japanese paintings into the retelling of the ballad along with their kind of with the more dramatic reenactments or and uh, performances, I thought was pretty interesting as well and pretty effective. I'd also like to say that um, the makeup in this one was also amazing 
particularly with some of the warriors um yeah. in some of the scenes you're seeing the 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 traditional japanese paintings depicting you know the battle going on and then it cuts back to the live actors and you know the samurai's face like twists and there's a lot of makeup but it seems natural and it seems almost as if it's like a live representation of like a mask that you know a traditional japanese <clears throat> mask that you yeah see, which is absolutely kind of stunning yeah absolutely it is so um before we i think we're probably pretty you guys agree we're probably pretty much ready to move on to the last one right Yes, yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. There is one thing I want to mention though, which, and I'm not even sure how I feel about this, but I just want to throw this out there. This is the only segment of the four that features comic relief in the form of these two like, yeah. like, <laughs> scared shitless uh, monks or assistant monks or servants yeah. or wherever the heck they are, who are kind of tasked with like looking after Hoichi and mm. like keeping him out of trouble, and then like bringing him like retrieving him from the ghosts and there's these like a series of almost like slapstick scenes involving them and how scared <laughs> they are and i just i i don't really i mean it was funny but I, how did you guys feel about that did that take you out of the movie did you enjoy it did you think you know i liked it i i enjoyed it um i have a feeling that they might have been there because it was so long to sort of keep the audience drawn in but I don't think mm. that it took away anything. It didn't like break the atmosphere. It didn't take me out of the movie. I thought, you know, they were funny, and um, it was better to be laughing at them rather than laughing at like an unintentionally funny part, like the hair jumping at Sam's <laughs> um, <laughs> neck in the black hair. So yeah, I I enjoyed that aspect. See, I would I would disagree on that. I think for me, it did kind of take me out of it, and I think that might be a facet to why I kind of drifted a little bit during Hoichi the Earless, because in the entire three hours and three minutes of the movie, those two guys are the only ones that I have so little recollection of. <laughs> For me, they were completely forgettable, and the rest of the film was so easy to get into that I think it's kind of strange that mentally I almost blocked those guys out. <laughs> now Woody? that I'm thinking back, because sorry, that was just one of those trailing because. Oh, okay, Rudy. Uh, well, I mean, you ever as a kid when you were listening to a really scary story, like you know, crack a joke to you know, I mean. And when you're doing it, you're, almost, you're still scared. I mean, when you're cracking the jokes, yeah. but uh, you're doing it, I guess, to uh, for that nervous laughter, you know, just to feel that nervous laughter in you. Right. And that, to me, was what those two guys basically were, is they were the yeah. audience, you know, cracking that nervous laugh. And uh, they did it, I thought it did a good job of that. And also, let me say that uh, um, on a more racist note... <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for this. The, uh, now, I know that physiognomy or whatever it's called isn't really like, you know, a, a respected thing anymore <laughs> because it's incredibly racist. <laughs> but the way they 
they cast these guys. I mean, it must have been on their minds. You know, we have to cast some, you know, lower born looking type of dudes to fill that role, the role of those two guys, because those guys looked exactly like what, like the stereotype of, you know, essentially like, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to figure out a delicate way to say it. But they basically, look like cartoon characters. They look like cartoon characters. Exactly. They look like a very cartoonish <laughs> stereotype of like, a lower class Japanese person. Basically. Let me say this: they look like a cartoon character that um, Theodore Geisel, aka Doctor yeah, Seuss, Seuss, might yeah. have drawn during the height of the Second World right. War. <laughs> exactly. That's that's yeah. exactly. What they yeah. Look. And the other ones, the monks and stuff, you can tell they don't look like that. I mean, and it's just, I mean, there's a real stark difference between them, and you know, like the two, the two monks, the two head monks. Uh, the older guy and the younger guy, the fat guy, yeah. you know, they have a real distinct appearance. Um, and Hoichi has this kind of distinct, like almost noble appearance, but those two guys, they have a distinct appearance, but it's, you know, it's what, I don't know what. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I know. I know. Well, that's, that's a time honored, that's a time honored tradition in Western cinema too. I mean, Oh yeah outside of his own movies where he is the writer, producer, and director as well as the star, you don't see Larry the Cable Guy being cast as a lead actor. <laughs> right? No, you don't. <laughs> That's not wrong. You don't you don't see that. You, you don't see the fat, uneducated rednecks being put in the lead role. No, they're the comic relief. It's yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good I'm sure it was point. the same thing at work. It, that is a good looking point. For a caricature. It was just, you know, these are hillbilly stereotypes that we've got. Yeah, that's what they are. They're hillbilly stereotypes, but coming from a different culture. They're Japanese hillbilly stereotypes. Man, Um, every culture has it. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I I will say, since you mentioned that Hoichi has a very distinctive look in a movie that's full of really great casting, I think Mm. he may be the best cast character mm, not only in this segment but in the entire film yeah. like just there is something just really unearthly about him and something mm. just incredibly like just incredible about his performance I, I don't want to belabor mm. the point but mm. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a really mm. great performance Yeah. so AJ has informed me that she is falling asleep <laughs> <laughs> oh typical Oh God! God damn it, AJ! That's what happens when the sugar wears off. (laughs) (laughs) AJ, who ate two whole fun-sized packets of M&Ms prior to taping, (laughs) which you wouldn't think would be that much, but apparently, uh, it worked for a while. Okay. Oh, you were a rabid wombat before we started this. (laughs) Yeah. Sugar crash. So let's move on then. Let's do In a Cup of Tea, which I don't think we need to talk about for too long, and then let's wrap up, because probably prior to me editing out the parts where we were having technical difficulties, this probably is going to be close to the length of the film. So uh, anyone want to say anything about In a Cup of Tea? You know, AJ, why don't you start talking about this one uh, while you're still awake? Um, I really liked... I really like this one. Now that I think about it, it might actually be my favorite. Um, I like that it was shorter. 
and I like that it got pretty meta. Gets extremely um, meta. <laughs> and I love the scene where the character of his story was fighting the the three lackeys or whatever that came for him but you can't see them all you can see are the shadows mm. uh, during like that scene in the fight that was that visually got me pretty hard i really like that um and also like the action during that entire scene um even with the encounter with the ghosts originally it all seems very unpredictable in a way that you would suspect would mirror what supernatural events really are like if they actually were to happen in reality. Mm -hmm. um, the effect of the guy in the tea was a little bit hokey. I mean, like they were doing the best that they could, but <laughs> it, it, it kind of... Um, I'd say that that sort of took me out of it a little bit. But other than that, I really enjoyed it. I actually really liked the guy in the tea effect just because it was right on that line where like it, it, it was so mundane in a way uh, in that it was very clearly a reflection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was a reflection with no source, which is what I think. One of my favorite things about this section is – it's a really great example of finding horror in the mundane, which is fits as like an endpoint for this series because you have this journey into where the first one starts mundane and by the end you're in the realm of the supernatural and the second and third ones are deep in the realm of the supernatural and then this one is almost an easing out of the realm of the supernatural up to the point where you actually see the storyteller oh until the end when boom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're hit by it again. But so I like the idea of like how many times have you been creeped out by something subtle, something that was just not right, you know, something that wasn't like transparently spooky. That's one of the things I like about this. There's no like spooky up until the very last scene, like ghost makeup stuff going on as there mm -hmm. is in some of the earlier ones. Like the guy's reflection in the mm -hmm. glass of tea isn't that scary. He's actually almost making kind of a funny face. You know, he seems almost yeah. amused up until the moment where the dude drinks him. But there's something so unsettling about that, about having something happen and not knowing why it's happening or how it's happening and have it happen, having it happen in the middle of the day in broad daylight during like the most mundane part of your life, during a, the most mundane act you could imagine, which is just drinking a cup of tea, just going into and also that whole segment though where he like takes one glass and he looks at it he's like and he <laughs> throws know? it away and yeah. he feel, he's like what the fuck and he throws it he gets yeah. another one and he's like oh shit and he fucking throw, chucks that one on the ground and breaks <laughs> it and then he, yeah. he he draws the third one out and you can see he's like you know what no fuck you buddy <laughs> and, he yeah. it. and it's something like just that so like I don't know, wonderfully true to life in that, in the way it's one thing to be presented with something unexplainable at night where your natural impulse is to draw away and hide. But when something like that happens during the day, you're just like, what? <laughs> you know, right. and, and your response is like, <laughs> that's contempt. a good point. 
Right. Because you can't be it's it, it in the in the broad light of day, something like this isn't immediately scary. It's just really weird, and you're just really angry that your life has been turned upside down by something <laughs> you don't understand. And so his response is very natural. And then the escalating sequence of increasingly bizarre consequences to it are also, on the one hand, almost slapstick, but on the other hand, like really disturbing. Like Rudy, mm. in fact, it made me think of one of your favorite. Uh, Ghost stories. The wait until what is it? Wait until um. Wait till Martin comes. Yeah. Wait until Martin comes, and the way it's structured. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, I mean, yeah, it is. It is like that one, I guess. I mean, that's the one with uh, where the guy goes into the house and sees the cat, and then there is another cat there, and it starts. To, they start talking, and he's like, "Well, what should we do to this guy?" And then they're like, "Well, we won't do anything. We'll wait till Martin comes, or whatever." And then it gets. How does it go? There's like another bigger and bigger cat. They, they come keep in, getting right? bigger. The third and, cat yeah. comes in and he's bigger and than you, the second one. Right. Yeah, basically you're wondering when you're gonna see Martin, and then the guy finally gets up and says, "Well, fuck this, I'm out of here." You know, <laughs> Martin can you know, shove it or whatever. Right. Exactly. But, and this functions in a similar way because you have that teaser there in fact yeah. in, in the penultimate scene where the, yeah. the guy well the guys like um uh handlers or like servants show up yeah and they're yeah. like he's coming next week on he's this day, next week. <laughs> and he's gonna fuck you up and you're like oh shit what's gonna happen like you start yeah. to What's going to happen? Because this guy has been set up in such a weird way. First, he like manifests himself in the cup of tea, and then he shows mm. up in the guy's house, and he like, you know, yeah. he 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 does his supernatural shit, and he walks through a wall, and he disappears. So you're yeah. waiting for the the punchline when he shows up and yeah. really fucking wrecks shit. <laughs> and then right. of course the story ends before you get that. Right. right. And that that is just an interesting kind of conceit in. Uh, in ghost stories, like the idea of a ghost story where you don't get an answer. You don't, why was any of this happening? Who knows? You know? Yeah. Um, and I think this is really effective in that way. A anything else you guys want to say about it? Well, I mean, going back to the analogy of, of the meal, you know, you had your, you had your appetizer, you had your, your soup and salad, you had your entree. Mm -hmm. To me, this was the dessert. That or it's moment the cup of, of satisfaction, <laughs> or the cup of coffee. Yeah, it was that moment of satisfaction. You had that faster pace to it. It was one thing after another, just boom, boom, boom. Just that gratifying, that satisfying gratification moment. And I think this is what really just brought the whole movie together for me. This was that punctuation mark that you want at the end of the sentence. This was the dessert that you want at the end of the meal. This was just awesome. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And it also, uh, I, I think I mentioned this, but this one is once again shot in a lot. It, it, even though it's dealing with really weird subject matter, it's shot in a much more direct, conservative kind of mundane way than the two middle ones. Like you don't see the 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 hand painted backdrops aren't here anymore. Mm -hmm. The um, a, a lot of, there's not the same like over the top makeup work that you see in some of the others, except for 
there's one moment. There's a couple small moments there. Uh, it feels like you're being drawn back into the real world, and then it does transition totally to the real world, where you actually see the the author writing the story, right? And you think, and that's when you like take a breath, and you're like, oh god, I'm safe. Like I made it out. I escaped. Oh, yeah. that's you true. know. That's true. And then there's until you get to the very end, and. Mm-hmm the writer himself is claimed by the ghost story and you find out the reason why the story was left unfinished is because the story in some way presumably consumes its mm-hmm. teller. Mm-hmm. And that I thought was interesting. Like that is the real kicker that this needed. The idea that, that to send you like, have you turn yeah. off the movie just deeply unsettled the, because it would have been so so cathartic to have the writer finish the story and be like, well, we'll never know, but you know, you're back in the real world. You're safe. It, it was all just a bunch of ghost stories. But to have that moment where the ghost story claims its teller, you know, where that world like reaches out and ah, could, like grabs him. Yeah. That really like nobody's safe, right? It's almost like Inception when you see the top spinning or whatever at the end. It's like, is this the real world or is there another layer? Is there, you know, whatever. Yeah. Are you ever outside of the ghost story? To what degree yeah. might yeah. there be yeah. unseen forces at work in our own world? You know, like, to, right. to what degree, like, does the telling of ghost stories create phantoms of a story? Right. right. Because he's actually almost in another world at the end. It's only because he's trapped within the well, you know? Right, yeah. And that's another instance where you have, like in the black hair, in fact, it's almost a perfect parallel to the black hair, where you get to see the characters respond to the horrifying thing before you mm-hmm. see the horrifying thing. And still the horrifying thing isn't diminished by the fact that you've seen people respond to it. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. In fact, that may be like the scariest single visual in the film is him in the well and like just like the pallor of his skin and the fact that he Mm. looks neither dead nor alive and like he's groping. Like, is he trying to get out? Is he trying to like, what is it like? And then just the image of the empty cup on its side. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, AJ, are you still awake? Uh, yes, but, um, I think your last two words were done should be in, like, we should bring <laughs> that meta into the podcast. Uh, I don't know. I think we Well, should... in the spirit of the film, in the spirit of the film, I do have one more thing I would like to add. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. This is what you get for interrupting me like four times tonight. God damn it. <laughs> but one thing that I would like to add, and it's not actually about the film itself, but something mm-hmm. about Filmstruck, which is where you guys can view it, because I don't know if we mentioned that at the start, mm-hmm. um, is that Quidan is actually in a film collection that's curated by Toro. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think that's yeah, such yeah. a t- telling little factoid because Del Toro has really made his mark in making these little films that kind of bridge the gap between the world and this sweeping paranormal 
presence. Right. And That's so I true. thought that was just one interesting little factoid that he's the one that yeah. brought this uncut version of Quietan to the film struck. Yeah. And that's just such a such a telling what kind of movie and what kind of a an impact this film has that a filmmaker who I greatly respect and admire and enjoy his works bringing this film back from its edited down form. Yeah. I, I think you could easily see this as a precursor for something like Pan's Labyrinth, which is a movie mm-hmm. I'm really oh, ambivalent about in some ways, but I definitely think you could see how his visual style was informed mm-hmm. by this movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Are we done? We done. We're done? Fuck done. it. Fuck it. Fuck it. Should I dance or should I die? I I can't decide.